Randy said something to me early on in my career that rings in my head to this day. He said, you always want to do things right the first time, but you won't, <laughs> especially not if you hire employees. But if you have the integrity to go back, make it right with that customer, you'll actually build more rapport with that customer going back and taking care of their concern than you would have if you'd have just done it right the first time. ATWF, welcome to Wood Floor Business Podcast, all things wood floor. I'm your host, Stephen Diggins. Today's guest, Paul Nelson of Western Sports Floors and Wyoming Wood Floors. Paul is featured as a writer and contributor in Wood Floor Business Magazine's June-July issue, both in print and online. Sports Floor first-time All-American Paul Nelson, Western Sports Floors. he got economics, finance, customer service, travel, sports floors, line painting, dead spots in gyms, court line hierarchy. We got it all. You want to know more about sports floors? You're going to learn so much your head's going to explode on this one. Please, stomp the bleachers, clap your hands, let's rattle the refs with this one, folks. How about an anthemic chorus of ATWF home court crowd support for Paul Nelson, Western Sports Floors. Let's just sing it together, folks, because you know it's coming. Floor Pro around the world let's get to it all right paul nelson western sports floors wyoming wood floors welcome to all things wood floors thank you steve Pleasure to be with you. You're the most renowned man at this point in sports flooring, and you have just gotten started. Is that correct? <laughs> I watch your videos. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. I love my. You know what I like? I watch your stuff on YouTube. It's it's uh, you got a subject, you keep it brief, you get to it, and um, it doesn't matter how many times you've done a floor or how many people you've seen do it. There are people that have opinions. There are people that have things they like to work through and demonstrate. And you do things a little different, but they're always dead on. Whether it's you're using a particular type of pad, particular type of cleaner, uh, we're going to get into the sports floor part of it. But am I right that you got into this about? 1997-ish, just before the 2000 um, market crash? You know, we were doing some residential at that point, but we, we actually got into the sports world in 08, 09 during that crash. Gotcha. Okay. So how do you do How do you, Now, I originally, as all jacked up, you're from Wyoming, Wyoming Wood Floors. You're, in, you're not now. You're in Montana, correct? That is correct. We're near Clinton, Montana, near Missoula, Montana, western side of Montana. Gotcha. What was the, how did you start out in, in residential a little bit? And then tell me how you jumped over into uh, in doing gymnasium floors. Sure. So we were uh, in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We did high-end residential. Um, and 08, 09, all of a sudden the phone just stopped ringing and just kind of out of desperation, we sent some letters out and made some phone calls and inquired if anyone needed a gym done. And, and at that point, there wasn't much of anybody doing gymnasiums in Wyoming. And we were able to keep busy throughout those 9, 10, 11, kind of those slow years. And by 2012, we bought a competitor, a gymnasium floor competitor, in uh, the Missoula, Montana area, and actually moved up here, and that has become our our primary focus for, our, for what we 
do at this point. Was that a good time because of the recession where you're like, you know, I think we can make this move because it's so lean? I don't know. That would have been an easy move when times are good and things were rolling. Did you find it was you could jump right in because getting in the gym game is not an easy gig? <laughs> well, it, it isn't. And, and yet at the same time, there's always room for somebody that does a good job because a written estimate calls people back. Uh, I mean, there is always room for somebody willing to hustle and do things right. I, I, I believe that. I, I believe that 20 years ago, I believe it today. Um, every industry has room for somebody that's willing to hustle, produce a quality product, show up on time, return a telephone call. It, it's so basic. If, if you do basic things, blocking and tackling, to use a football analogy, if you can do basic things right, there's room in any industry for you. You know, I think people, they overlook that. We see that today where there's not enough professional hardwood flooring in any aspect. And the people that see that money, and it's more than I used to get paid, they jump in. But that's all I get all day long is technical calls for things gone wrong because they're missing that focus that you just mentioned. Let's get the rudimentary stuff down before you become a hero, please. Before you put in your first medallion and your border and your whatever craziness, can you just at least find a way to use your sanding sequence properly and maybe even tack and coat a floor properly? I had a guy today, he wants to put 2,000 feet of concrete, solid hardwood in his basement. And I said, well, we don't do that. And he goes, well, I did. And I go, how long did that last? He said, three years. And I go, and you want to do that again? <laughs> i remember a quote i know i i this came from you i know it did i it said um something like going from residential to commercial is like the difference from going from flooring to doing roofing right it, it, it's a completely different world listen there's nothing steve that i've ever learned that i didn't learn the hard way right okay so i don't I don't hold myself up to be smarter than anybody everything i talk about uh, is something somewhere along the way I've made a mistake and hopefully tried to learn to correct that. But I have come to the conclusion that you do the basics right, blocking and tackling, which are returning telephone calls, giving a written estimate, and showing up on time. I mean, it's just four or five, six little things, but if you do correctly, things will go much easier in your business. But when you're going from and you're clearly a, a you know a customer service get out there and get it done guy. How do you how do you get gain the trust of a consumer that's like gym flooring? You're probably dealing with an AD or um, a bank or or a, a or an organization or a school or a municipality. It's not like you've gained the confidence of the homeowners and they love you and somebody gave your name out. How do you go and get the trust? enough to get yourself into the commercial and talk about that because that is not easy you don't just jump in and find a gym and go do it yeah that's a it's a great point steve although like any community it's a small community i was i was visiting with a fellow in los angeles so uh is, is that the biggest city in the united states yeah. i don't know <laughs> new york or, or los angeles one of yeah one of the two are the biggest city in the united states so uh and he was, uh, he ran a carpet company or something, and he had done some hardwood floor work, and he was looking at recoding gymnasiums. And I mentioned that to him. I said, the gym floor world is a small community, even in a big city. And he said, you're right. I know you're right about that. Uh, he was a ref or something, and, and so he refed youth basketball, and he knew different people. And he said, I know, it's a small community. And in smaller states, 
I work in Montana, Wyoming, the Dakotas. It's an extremely small community. Right. And so that, that's a double-edged sword. Do a good job, and that community is going to know about it. Uh, <laughs> do a less than perfect job, and that community is going to know about it. So, <laughs> oh yeah, you, you're right. Uh, you know, uh, I think even I, I love quoting you. I, we we've never met, but I like to look over some things and read and, and articles and etc. And um, you you were listing in a magazine. You were you're doing some work with uh, Wood Floor Business Magazine. We have an article coming out about you, and they're like, why why don't you go talk with Paul about this stuff? One of the things you said, I love it. It's so it's really ingrained is um that. Just the customer's appreciation of your work alone, that, that's part of your payment. No one thinks about the goodwill in that. That's absolutely true. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, and it's particularly in my mind as a residential guy, when, when you're going into a customer's home and you do what you say, you showed up when you said you would, you charge them the amount of your written estimate in the beginning, they appreciate that. I mean, that's hard to find. Ironically, yes. I mean, at some level, that should be the basic expectation, but it's just not. And so that customer is so happy, so grateful. And frankly, I don't know what the numbers are, but let's just say you go in and you put a $25,000 floor in somebody's house. I think the National Wood Flooring Association or somebody has done studies that uh, typically, the value of that house goes up by some percentage greater than what you charge the customer. You're absolutely right. Studies, studies on that. Well, so, my wife's a realtor, and I we I do seminars, and I steal a little bit from her book, and I'll say, okay, it's lunchtime. Let's take a break. Everybody, free lunch for anybody that gets me a real estate guide that says this home features beautiful new carpets. It uh, nothing yeah. appreciates, <laughs> and, and you can add our little laminate pals who won't be named. Those hardwood floors are spectacular. They're just absolutely spectacular. That the customer is grateful, and there's just no question in my mind, particularly on the residential side, that's part of the payment that you receive is not only the satisfaction of a job well done, but the appreciation of the customer base that you work for. Do you remember? Uh, even like the night before you're getting loaded up and going, guess what? We're going to do a gymnasium tomorrow. Like that had to be a lot of anxiety. Do you, do you remember the, that exact transition? Oh, for sure. Uh -oh. I, I mean, Oh gosh, you know, and we walked the first couple of gymnasiums that we did just wearing our hips and our ankles and knees out. Um, but I was always excited about it. Yeah. And same thing when you're done, now, instead of creating a work of art that's four, five, six, eight hundred square feet, you're creating a, a work of art that's 10,000 or 14,000 square feet. I mean, it's just sure. a work of art on, on an industrial scale, mm -hmm. if you will. That's what a gym is. Oh, th there's no doubt. It, you know, I, I was looking at some of the layout and how people get into certain design. And um, I think you and I spoke at one time about how proprietary gyms are in our area. It, this is interesting. We've never had this conversation, but I've gone and looked at gyms when I was younger. Never get them. You know, I get ready to get the bond and I get my team together. And then somebody used to, at like midnight, fax through a cocktail napkin with a number and their buddy in the in the municipality, the school, the church, whatever, would get these gymnasiums. And you're trying to, you're doing everything you possibly can to get involved in this stuff. And you're just, you're not part of it. I remember 
saying there's this one company, I call them fruit flies. You don't see fruit flies ever until you open a bottle of wine and leave it out. And you're like, where do fruit flies come from? Well, there's this one coating manufacturer that owns planet Earth for gymnasiums. You go to any school and I go watch the fruit fly. I would go in, quote this, within an hour, this company, which is not at a distributor, it's not online, it's nowhere, would pop up with their trophy finish, and they, they, I'd lose the job. I'd go, where does this guy come from? They must have people living in the janitorial closet. It's crazy to get into bidding. In my area, there's two. They're proprietary. There's one in Vermont, one in Massachusetts. Don't even touch their stuff. You'll never get involved in that. It, was that not the case out west, or did you run into these big proprietary gym companies? No, <clears throat> there, there is some of that, and, and it continues. Um, one of the things to understand in that world, in the gym floor world, is that you're talking about public money. Okay. Um, and primarily, you know, this might be a little bit different for folks that do professional courts, and a lot of D1 colleges, which I don't simply because we don't have any professional teams in Montana or Wyoming or Idaho. So I just don't have that opportunity. But if you're talking about a public school with public dollars, that's a that's a political job. Even the head of maintenance of that institution, that's a somewhat political job. Sure. They're they're entrusted with the public dollars. Okay. So if there is a contractor that has been satisfactorily servicing that facility for 35 years, it is somewhat of a risk for that head of maintenance to go hire an outsider, even if he can save some money. And so that's what, in my opinion, what you're running up against. Uh, you, you really have to prove yourself, but how do you prove yourself and nobody will hire you? That's the catch-22. Is that where you wind up doing, um, you know, a local uh, school, a uh, boys and girl, girls club, a YMCA? That's how I started. I, I got a YMCA and then I got two or three of them. Then I ran into the guy that was supposed to be doing them and we teamed up and he taught me a little more. And then, you know, I never got into it commercially, but whenever the little you know, junior high court shows up or something. And I, a lot of people still don't do lines or paint or have a um, taping machine. And I loved it, but that's how I got in. It was just a chance to do little pickleball courts and things. Sure. And, and there are gyms, as you point out, that are more or less privately owned at Catholic schools, Christian schools, like you said, YMCA's once in a while, an Elks Lodge or a Mason Lodge will have a large wood floor, or even a gymnasium. And so there's uh, there's private facilities around that might be easier to break into the market. There, there's ways of doing it. People figure it out. At, at what point do you do you get asked to people say, "Hey, but do you research it with like a Dodge report or something like that, or do you do you you probably have your seasonal return business that you still have to to bid?" Do you do you get offered to do a lot? Are you already scheduled? And do you still have to bid even if they're kind of on your schedule? We do. We always send a written bid. Always. Okay. Always. And I don't always know. I, I don't usually know what the process is. Some districts handle it others up differently. A lot of times they'll open those bids publicly in a school board meeting. Um, some facilities are very, they just are going to go with the low bidder and that's it. And some, as we've talked about before, uh, will accept a bid from somebody that they've worked with year in, year out, and they don't seem to, to look at much in the way of other bids. 
So it, it seems to vary from facility to facility, but if you do good work for an institution, it is much easier to get the work next year. I'll tell you that. Is there, um, and I, it's been a while since I've done any contract work, um, it, is there a difference between a, a bid and a submittal, or is that the same thing? So a bid is where you see, is when you're talking about submittals, where we're seeing that, generally speaking, is on new construction. Somebody's building a new facility. Okay. You have a large general contractor involved. You give them a number, a bid. I can put you in a new gymnasium floor for $200,000, okay? okay? Once they accept your bid, they will send you a contract, okay? Once you sign the contract, they'll ask for submittals. Tell me what the floor system is, what kind of paint you're going to use, what kind of finish you're going to put on it, what kind of rubber pads, what do your thresholds look like? I want to know about your base coat. Basically, a submittal is a materials list, everything you're going to use in that project. And when you're putting all the material together, I, I assume it takes quite a long... It, you don't just do these overnight. There seems to be, at least where we are, there's a, there's a gym season about the time school lets out. But you still have to have the material, have it ready to go, get it on site. How long does it take to get all that together once the, the design plans and specs for, let's say, an install, the whole thing complete? How long does it take before that actually gets accepted, launched, and you start swinging hammers? A lot of times, which is what's really scary right, right now, okay. a lot of times if you're talking about a new construction project, it'll be 18 to 24 months down the road. From the time you bid it to the time the general contractor accepts your bid, sends you a contract, requests submittals, schedules a delivery date, it can be 18 to 24 months down the road. Okay. okay? And right now, as you well know, nobody is holding prices on anything. Yeah. And so it's a scary time to be bidding projects. That was my next question. Like what happens um, if at the time that you submit this, are you, is there a percentage you're allowed to fluctuate or you are dialed in for that cost? That's it. You are theoretically dialed in, but, but here's how, here's how I've handled it. I can't talk about anybody else. But I have dialed back some of our bidding for 23 because we got kind of caught in 22. We bid some stuff. It was before the whole inflation thing came. Mm -hmm. I got a couple of jobs that are going to be really tight. Yeah, I get that gets super tricky. There's, I know sometimes when you're doing residential or even, you know, light commercial or contract work, there's a percentage in there. But if I remember correctly, there's not a lot of wiggle room especially because of the bidding, because there may be municipalities, like you said, churches or schools, et cetera. I, boy, I'd be seriously afraid to get burned on something like that. It's a scary time. It's a really scary time. And so I, I mean, we can, but the future is always unknowing. Right. And the future is as unknown now as it ever has been. And somehow we'll muddle through. I don't, I don't have the answers, but we'll figure it out. Are there items you can't get? I know as a distributor, I've had a very difficult time, no matter how many sources I have for adhesive, there's always either the pail's not available, the adhesive's not available, the handles to put on the pails, the labels to put on the pail. There seems to always be something slipping somewhere. It, uh, Baltic birch coming in from Russia for en the engineered portion of the flooring. Is it with the guys that are out in the field for you today, is it, are there simple items like that or, that are hard to obtain? Yeah, uh, uh, extruded aluminum threshold Ooh. is very difficult. Um, anything that you have to special order, extremely difficult. And so we just go.
go to the general contractors that were working. I just had this conversation. I said, look, you've got to get your design team, your architect to choose an off the shelf threshold because I can't special order threshold. And so I gave them two or three options. I said, look, this is what's available. They, they, they have to pick an off the shelf threshold or I might be holding up your whole project, but they're used to it. I'm not the only one. Everybody's having these supply chain issues. So I haven't, fortunately, Maple has been pretty available. Uh, plywood, although it's expensive, is available. Trucking is a problem. Truck, Our trucking has tripled to Montana in 18 months. So um, that's why I say I, I, I feel like our prices are up much more than the 8 or 9% that the government is actually publicizing, but I understand they're looking at a wide variety of products. Our cost of doing business is probably up 20 to 25%. Do you have any, is it difficult for you being that Montana is such a huge state and you might be, do you get more of your product from Canada because you typically work with maple more or is that just, am I off on that one? Uh, yeah, we uh, are distributors for Robbins and Action. Uh, they're MFMA. I mean, kind of out in the middle of nowhere, Montana, but architects and engineers still spec an MFMA product. That product, almost without exception, comes out of northern Wisconsin and the upper peninsula of Michigan. So it all comes from the same place. I know the first floor that I, I ever did, we got half the gym done and the AD came in and threw us a basketball and we went to dribble it and it died. And I I I almost <laughs> threw up. Remember the old Three Stooges? I swear to God, I still talk about the Three Stooges when I got into flooring. There was an episode, the boys were in the basement doing plumbing. And by the time it was over, they had water coming out the light sockets. The basement flooded. Water came out the TV set. And the first time I did a floor, I'm like, that's going to be me. They're gonna, right. I'm going to burn the house down. <laughs> first time I did a sports floor, like, oh, my God, they're going to sue me. This is going to be terrible. Uh, we put the gym, the guy came out, I dribbled a basketball, it died. And I threw it to my partner and he dribbled it. And he goes, Oh my God, what have we done? You know, we, we used the rubber pads. We put the floor back the way we found it. We used the screens. And just as I was ready to call a lawyer, the AD goes, not that ball. And he rolled me a ball with some air in it. Oh boy. Is there such a thing? Can you make a dead gymnasium? I, I assume you can do the, all the wrong things. Oh, for sure. Oh. Uh, you know, the specification on the concrete is one eighth of an inch in a 10 foot radius. Well, that's, that's pretty tight on that concrete. And the reason for that is the rubber pads that, that the gymnasium floor is sitting on all have to make contact with that concrete because vibration is your enemy. What's happening when you have a dead spot is that it, uh, there's vibration being created in that floor system. And then that absorbs the ball bumps. That's famous here in Boston, the, the, the Celtics parquet, and they took that ugly thing and they moved it into the new building. But they used to talk about how in the championship games, only the Celtics knew where the, de the dead spots were. And they were pretty bad, too, because there was something like 5,850 bolts in that floor to keep that thing from moving. You, you drop a ball <laughs> in a dead spot, you'll know real fast it was a dead spot. There's a lot of guidelines in that, uh, correct? Even from not just the design and layout and, and the bounce on off the floor and the material, but even the lines, uh, it's everybody today wants something real fancy and pretty and flashy. And I had done some work with Canlac coatings. I, I was speaking with Mike Hoy up there. We were talking about how they're trying to find a, a gymnasium finish that's flatter, 
so that they don't get some so much reflection off the cameras because it's such a big event on television now. But you lose that slip coefficient. What are the kind of technical things that you really can't fool with, like in as far as the line specifications, how accurate they are, and maybe even let's just say how the surface performs. Sure. Well, uh, that that term that you use, the coefficient of friction, has to do with the finish. And that finish is tested and approved by the MFMA, the Maple Flooring Manufacturers Association. And obviously, you wouldn't want to use some finish that isn't approved that uh, the players have difficulty with. That would put yourself in a bunch of liability. Um, and as you mentioned, the lines have to be in the right place, which is always challenging because the basketball hoops and the volleyball caps aren't always in the right place. So there's, there's always compromises that have to be made based on, on what you have to work with. But, um, and, and then we talked earlier already about ball bounce. Uh, I'll tell you what, if, if the AD finds a dead spot in your floor, there's, there's a problem. Yeah, you're going to figure out how to get that fixed. I imagine that's not an easy fix. Well, you mentioned the bolts in the Celtics floor. I have no knowledge of what they did, but one one potential fix isn't a great fix, but one potential fix is to run some kind of a tapcon, a concrete anchor through that maple floor into the concrete to to pull that down, and then of course you have to fill that with a plug and, and, and finish that spot. Um, but that that's one potential fix is to pull that floor down snug to the concrete. Have you ever done any of the gym floors that have to be removed? I, I know some they take out and there's ice and then they put the other one back in and the portables. Uh, and, and again, those typically go in large arena venues in, in large cities. Uh, the biggest city in Montana is Billings, Montana. To the best of my knowledge, there's one portable floor in the state of Montana. Uh, at uh, the Metra Arena in Billings. We've been in and done some very, very light work on that floor. But no, my experience with portable floors is extremely limited. The um, When you get in the bidding process and everything, are, I think I recall there's probably either insurances and bonding involved. and there, there must be something on that end of it to guarantee that the consumer's you know, not going to, you're not going to bail on them. Sure. Um, we are, in some cases, required to bond. Uh, bonding is, is like insurance. Uh, in fact, uh, the insurance agent provides it. And, and basically, they're ensuring that you will go and do the job as per specifications to the customer's satisfaction. Uh, and that's what bonding is all about. And if you don't perform, uh, the bonding, then uh, they can use that money to go hire another contractor to finish the job that, that you've left unsatisfactory to the customer. And so I've never uh, had a bond collected on, thank goodness. Uh, but I suspect that if you ever did have a bond collected on, uh, getting a bond in the, after that would be very difficult. So. Uh, to, the, to the extent that a person has to go get bonded. And it doesn't happen a lot. When we work for general contractors, they're typically bonded. And a lot of times they don't require us to get bonded. But two or three times a year, we have to go get a bond and, and provide it to, to whoever we're working for. 
and uh, like I say, it's like an insurance policy. Um, if you make $75,000 a year, you probably can't go buy a $5 million life insurance policy, right? right. So, so it's kind of like that. You have to show that you have the ability to complete a job. Let's say you're asking for a $300,000 bond. First thing you're going to ask was, is what was the last $300,000 job you completed? Well, I've never completed a $300,000 job, but last year we did four $200,000. You know, in other words, they want to see your ability to perform on a job. And in that process, what do you have to complete in order to get paid? Because I, I, last I did commercial work, it wasn't like you got paid when the, the last coat went down. It, I think last one I did, it took me 120 days to even start to get paid. Yeah, our experience isn't quite doesn't quite take that long, but it, it does take some time. Typically, uh, in our area, <clears throat> general contractor will ask for a bill for, uh, let's see, we're in May, so they'll say, okay, Paul, uh, we need a bill for everything you've done in the month of May by the 25th of May, okay? All right, so we report the bill, okay? This floor, we installed it last month, but this month we sanded it, sealed it, painted it, finished it. So uh, we still have to do threshold and base code, but we're gonna charge you for the sanding, sealing, painting, and finishing. So 25th of May, we submit a bill for that work. Then they'll bill the customer about the 1st of June. Customer will probably get around to paying three or four weeks later. And so sometime in July, a general contractor will cut us a check for that main work, typically. We're typically getting paid 60 days or so after we complete the work. So in the design and layout portion of it, is it, um, it is that all set up, let's say, by the, the folks that are putting the gymnasium together? They have an architect and an engineer drafted up and they give it to you? Or do they... Do they sit down with you and say, okay, here's the gym. This is the space. Here's what we're thinking for lettering, logos, um, all that kind of stuff. Is that all presented to you originally in the original prints, or do you get involved in that? It's usually in the original prints. A lot of times it'll get changed, so there's a change order involved. But typically they had something in the original prints that we bid in the way of a layout, and now as the project gets closer to completion, maybe they decide they want secondary lettering in the end zones or something, and that becomes an add-on to the job. But, but typically in the original bid, the architect will have included some kind of a layout that we bid with the original project. Do, do you see a lot of creativity and you guys jump in head first, or do you bring in an artist, or how do you guys handle the, the real creative stuff? Yeah, that's a great question, and I'm sure different contractors handle it differently. We have a an artist, but that's all he does is gym floor layouts, yep. and so we feel that he's very good at it. And so we ask him to provide layouts. A lot of times, if we're dealing directly with the school, you know, they had an idea of what they had the last time, and they got some ideas of what they want to do this time based on probably what one of the neighboring schools is doing. And and so we'll bring them three or four examples of what we could do and 
go back and forth until they have a, a layout that they like. Once they have a layout that we like, they like, then we can give them a price on it. It's very difficult to give a graphics price when you don't have a, uh, you know, a layout. So we work through that process very early on so that we can, once we have a layout, then we can price the job. Do, do disagreements come up where you say, hey, you know, I know this is in the books here, but this is probably not kosher. Yeah, but if you bid it, you told the general contractor you could do it. Right, gotcha. So <laughs> you're on the hook, baby. You better be able to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> so when you're now knowing where you were uh, located in the country, um, I'm just thinking about our area. From here to Boston, there's, I don't know, a million, 50 billion floors. I don't know how many floors there are. It's crazy. Um, it, it must be, it must be different. You're, just thinking about it, the guys I know that are working in the Boston area, they never leave it. I don't think, I think they could walk to work every day. Their gyms are probably a little more spread out. Do you do a lot of traveling? We do a tremendous amount of traveling. Really? Like how far do you, how far around the country are they, are you going? Well, we're, we're covering Montana and Wyoming yep. primarily in the Northern Idaho. You'll remember Idaho has that big long panhandle that goes all the way up to Canada. Yes. Idaho State University is my sister graduated. There you go. And then we get into eastern Washington just a little bit, and we'll go over to to a certain extent and cover the Dakotas and and uh, and even into western Nebraska sometimes. So so we do cover a fairly large area, uh, mostly small rural areas, and. Uh, most of those areas have a fairly vicious winter, sure. and varsity high school basketball is a big deal. Big deal. <laughs> yes, I, it oh, is. yes, it is. What now? Do you, you do, are you doing typically one floor after the next, or do you have one or two, or you have multiple gyms going at once, or just one at a time? We do. We have a dedicated install crew, and so our install crew is uh, primarily focused on installing subfloor and maple in either new facilities or facilities that are getting a new floor we have a dedicated sand crew just sands floors and we have two paint crews and depending on the year sometimes we'll have a dedicated recoat crew as well that's so is there a season uh in like around here we obviously when school lets out it starts to go crazy and but that's sometimes that's different they'll sometimes the school will pay the janitorial staff to do a buff and coat they may have been trained to do it other times they bring in teams of people or they'll they'll bid it is there particularly a gymnasium season or or no sure summertime um, that's just like anybody else that's when they typically would would want us to come in in the summertime we to the, to the best of our ability, especially now with water-based finishes and a lot of people being amenable to making that switch. Uh, a lot of these water-based finishes are 24 to 48 hours playable. Sure. So we can, we can do those over the weekend. So we're trying to do more and more of that type of thing out of our super busy summer season. But when you've got to shut somebody's gym down for five or six weeks to sand it completely you know stain it completely repaint it finish it that's really not viable in a small school uh, especially where we have a lot of winter and they need that facility for phi ed and all the other activities that that 
district needs. Yeah, people don't realize that when I do work for the YMCA, they they will put a fire under you because they will tell you the first hour of today is, you know, $1,000 for the police department, and the next crew is the fire department, next crew is local volleyball, the next crew is the chess club, and then this week we're going to have voting. It's not just the basketball games with the junior high or high school. There's a lot of stuff goes on, especially voting. I know towns that will spend thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 on these ginormous uh, matting that they'll put out just so that when they do have voting time, no one will ruin their gym floor. Uh, gymnasiums are a big deal and they're very important to these communities. And that's something that we try not to lose track of is that this, when somebody calls up and they're not happy about something that seems insignificant, probably means that they're that head of maintenance or whoever's calling you is getting some heat from somebody because they're very important to a lot of different people within that community. We have small towns where they'll have weddings and funerals in the local gym. It's just no telling what can all go on within that facility. Hey, Wood Floor Pros. This is Kim Walgren, the longtime editor of Wood Floor Business. Are you on TikTok? We are. So make sure you follow Wood Floor Business and check out our videos that have gone viral. And of course, make sure you don't miss us on Facebook and Instagram to get in on the conversations, caption contests, and funny stories that all happen with our followers there. That's it for now. Let's get back to our conversation with sports flooring expert Paul Nelson. What's the maintenance on a gymnasium? You get it done, you walk out the door, they pay you for it, and you say, listen, we should really come back. How, mon- how much and how often? You know, when we've just sanded a floor or just installed a floor, so it's basically new maple. It only has four or five coats of finish on it. We'll typically do two coats of, of sealer and two coats of finish. But if we're using water-based, sometimes we'll do three coats of finish. But even if it's got five coats of finish on it, that's pretty it's pretty nominal coverage for a facility that gets the kind of use that most of these gymnasiums do. So we usually recommend to our customers that we come back and do a recoat in six months, and then it's annually after that. I had a problem. I got I got called from Converse Shoe one time, and, and they were out of Massachusetts. So luckily, I could drive there and speak with them. And I had to go through multiple levels of security badges, everything to get into the place and meet with them. And what happened was they had tried to make a shoe to compete with the Nike Air. And they got this idea to fill it full of gel. And what was happening, they were donating them to big basketball programs around the country. And these shoes were cracking and spurting this stuff everywhere. And people were slipping. They got calls from big shots. I'm talking people you would know on ESPN that were in they wanted to put me on a plane, fly me to Ohio, and and show them how to clean the floor before the lawsuits suits started, you know, pending. They took me in a private lab that was mostly glass and gymnasium floors with cameras and lasers everywhere. They had robotic legs just pounding sneakers and videoing things, and I had to sit with a team of scientists and talk about. <laughs> literally it was just a floor care kit but i did they gave me a, a jar of that solution that goes in the shoes and i took it back and i worked for three or four days to know what would get this off the gym floor and make it squeaky clean and i had never seen lawyers ready to pony up and drag people into this it got super ugly super fast you must walk off these projects and say listen if you ever want us to come back and coat this you're going to have to follow these instructions because I've gone into janitorial closets and schools and seen 
all those things we're not supposed to mention the oil soaps the the waxes the cleaners stuff that leaves residue on a floor do you get on the same page with these people and say you ever want us to come back here's what you're going to need to do while we're gone oh for sure and we do our best to give them care instructions and encourage people to to call, I think that's part of being in business. You know, we'll go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation and talk about blocking and tackling. And um, just being somebody that has a demeanor and the ability that your customers feel comfortable calling you, there's half the battle right there. Hey, I just got a great, I guess you're not supposed to name product, but since you did, I just got a great deal on a bunch of Murphy's oil soap for my, for my gym floor. Well, that, that's probably a product that you don't want to put on your gym floor. Thank you for calling me about it, though. <laughs> yeah, listen, if anything, whatever that is, now we have to test for it. We have to make sure we can clean it, bond to it. And you're not talking about a dining room. You're talking about 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever thousands of feet it is in at 14, 15 in a gymnasium. And we can't afford to have peeling issues. And you know what? You think about it. It is highly more likely these days that they're going to want a, a waterborne finish that's going to be dry in a few hours and cure in maybe six days instead of 21. It's not going to be bleeding off smell. It's going to be brighter. The, the gym's going to not look so yellow. It's going to look cleaner. But that's the stuff that's going to beat up real quick. We need it to mechanically bond. We need it to chemically bond. And we can't afford to have any contaminants. I, I, I watched several of your videos online to get into the technical part of it. I love watching right from the start when you wrap right into we're going to clean this floor and you're 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 not joking around this this is as important as nailing it you're like we're going to now clean gum tar shoes contamination whatever else is coming off the roads outside that's a big big deal when you're recoding to get it clean and and screened out and you know I have to uh, I have to give a shout out to my good friend Rob Zender he introduced me to that concept 10 years ago or more. He was a salesman for a finish. He came and visited me, but he said, you got to clean the floor first. And it's just so basic. And, and, and yet it makes so much sense. Get the floor clean and you can upgrade it with an SPP pad and, and you don't have swirl marks and just life is so much better. But uh, we could talk. That's a whole other podcast. Just talking sure. clean and sure. floors. Rob Zender. He, he he's not the gentleman that came up with the Zender bucket, did he? Yeah. I'm, well, I, I, and I think Rob would be the first one to tell you he got it from another contractor somewhere. But I heard it. So and, for those that don't know, is if you're coating a floor and you're trying to work out of gallon after gallon, it's it's ridiculous. If you can get a large portable container like a garbage can or a rubber, you know, made can and put a spout or something on it so that you can wheel it ahead of the team of people that will be snow plowing your poly it's a lot faster quicker easier better yeah we have a video on the zender finish barrel i saw i thought oh. i was really impressed with that i'm like wow we should have come up with the zender bucket i'm gonna give him credit for that but i do like we're you know we're a little bit into the technical aspects of it things change um we used to call everything a screening coat and i remember getting 80 grit screens and you put, you know, three coats of Fabulon down and you, you 
grind the living tar out of it until it, it looks like it snowed. And if you didn't, your boss would go, that's not buffing. You know, and then years down the road, we realized that's all polyurethane. What, we just put that down. What are we doing? And I noticed even in your videos, you went from originally doing what we call screening or abrading to more pads or more vacuum controlled, or even I think in one of your videos, you're using some chemicals to kind of clean the floor, knock the finish down, get a mechanical bond. Has a lot of that cleaning and screening process changed for you over the years? It has for, for all the reasons that, that you just mentioned. You, you go in with an 80 or 100 hertz screen, and there's, there's multiple problems. The first one, as you pointed out, you're, you're creating this polyurethane dust, which is very fine. It's difficult to contain with a vacuum, okay? And so now you're supposed to be the guy, the facility or gal, that the facility is hiring to make it look better, and you've just made a dusty mess everywhere in that facility, right. okay? So that's one problem, challenge, opportunity, however you want to look at it. The second opportunity, is that the screen, and, and this isn't always the case, because sometimes you might have 40 coats of finish over the paint, but if you have a facility that's been sanded or is relatively new, and you're coming along with an 80-grit screen, it's really easy to tear into the paint. Right. Oh. And so now you've got a job that you had scheduled to take a day, and it turns into a job that's a three-day job, and you, you do now you're late on the next four jobs you got to go do. Right, and on that that volume, I used to call it star trails. If you've ever seen somebody takes a photo of the night sky, they leave the shutter open all night, and it makes trails. When you start generating heat and friction with a screen, it's fine until you, you're on a surface that large, and you start to pill up, and then that urethane starts to grab and starts to build, and then it starts to leave swirls and everything. You're really sanding with debris. You're not even sanding cleanly. Uh, when you use an abrasive pad, which I noticed you use a lot of SPs and abrasive pads, you're getting the mechanical bond, you're moving that debris up into the pad so it gives you time to move it out, and you're not lifting all that particle really into the air. And you're not taking too much off the surface even. Correct. And it's with that SPP pad, you can do it, but you really have to try to damage paint. It's such a fine grit that it, it generally doesn't, uh, mess with the paint at all, which now, is really important with the amount of graphics that are going on these new floors, as we've been discussing. What is it typical? You got your main court and probably one, two, three, like two full courts or four side court baskets. Does that sound about right? Yes. No, depending on the size of the, of the gym. Yeah. In Montana, we typically have three. We have main court and two side courts. And two but side courts. You know, big, bigger gym, you, you may have multiple side courts. Absolutely. And in, in, in black's the right of way because it's a basketball court. And then you go and you lay out maybe there, like in some schools, a secondary court is uh, volleyball and they turn the other way. And those are, let's say, white. And you can't cross over the black lines with those. And then you add a pickleball court. There seems to be, a, you get into a right of way. Is it is that the right of way? Is it in the books or does the AD go, okay, basketball takes priority here and then other? Right. What you're calling it right away, we call hierarchy. 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 Okay, sure. Yep. Hierarchy. And so typically you'll consider basketball to be your primary sport. Now, that isn't always true. Colleges sometimes will have dedicated volleyball gyms, 
or dedicated, you know, it's really primarily a volleyball gym, and then your volleyball will have the priority. But typically, and you're going to know this depending on the area that you work in, typically main basketball, number one priority, okay, hierarchy. Main volleyball is number two, cross basketball, number three, cross volleyball, number four, and then all your pickleball, uh, badminton and all that stuff. You're breaking that for everything. So just to wrap up a few things, in the, in the technical part of it, the, the machines are totally different. The people in the, the, the um, residential side of it really know nothing about, and, and I'm a distributor, about Sanders. It, it looks like they bolted two Pro 8s together and said, let's have at it. What are riding Sanders exactly? Is that what, are they modified or do they actually make riding Sander machines? That's a great question. Again, that's another whole podcast. So I'll try and <clears throat> give you a brief explanation. Sure, we'll just. There's a company called Floor Style. Do you remember Floor Style? Floor Style Products. Floor Style Products. We can talk about that trade name because it's gone. It it's gone. Exist they used to be a thorn <laughs> in my side. <laughs> Winning. They had, Duh. They had a couple of fairly sharp folks that worked for them. I don't know the name, so I, I, I can't give them credit, or I would. But they took, what they did is they took American 12s and they took, and originally those sanders came with a three or four horse motor. They put on a 10 horse three phase motor, which created some other issues that had to be solved. It was too much power for the existing pulleys. So they put on these micro V pulleys like you have uh, on the front of the big serpentine belt. Uh, on a pickup, we'll have a micro V pulley. You can put a lot of horsepower into a micro V pulley. Okay. So they converted these American 12 sanders with 10 horsepower, three phase motors, and they designed this rider, which is basically a chair with wheels on it. And it's hydraulically driven. It also has a three phase motor that drives a hydraulic pump. And with a foot pedal, you just work those sanders back and forth and back and forth. And and they, it is amazing how well those systems work. They will go back and forth hundreds of thousands of times um, without needing much in the way of maintenance. Gotcha. Does the, does the, the abrasive part of it, it's not like uh, residential, like all the drum heads have 60 and then you change them. Is it actually that left to right, right to left, they're, they're different grits as you're moving along? Or do you, it's, they're all the, the drums are set up with one grit at a time? Uh, typically, we'll use a different grit on each drum. So if we're coming in, if we're sanding a new floor, we might start at 50, 60 mm-hmm. and then do 80, 100 on a, on a, floor that's really nasty we might do 24 36 really really nasty then we might do double 24s just kind of depends on the floor and the situation but a lot of times we'll 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 do different grits on each one of those machines well i'll tell you this the wood floor business magazine june july issue there's an article i I just kind of looked over them that um you're in there and you talk about uh, your company and gymnasium flooring. And like you said, th- th- you're involved in so much. We could do a hundred podcasts about every different subject that there is. I, it's, I found your videos online were really informative. They were, f- they're fascinating. Are you, 
and I notice you're involved. How much are you involved, just real quickly, over the physical? Do you have just so much more work to do setting all this up, or do you, you get out there and you're nailing, hammering, sanding, finishing everything? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a hands-on guy, and I love to be out on the road. I love to work on gyms. Obviously, there's, there's times that I have to be in the office, and I, I can't do it as much as I used to. I do enjoy it. I love it. I am planning to sand a good number of floors this year, so going back out again, um, I, I love it. I love the hands-on. I mean, I'll just tease you a little bit some of the things that we're working on. Uh, I, we are working on with a company actually out of Wisconsin on a riding nailer. We have a, a nailer that's powered that goes both directions on the oh. gym floor. And the nailer will, in theory, you'll be able to sit on it and, uh, and it'll be powered and uh, self-actuated nailers that'll, that will nail the floor. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah, so just, just, I'm just, there's just nothing about the industry that I'm not excited about and, and uh, trying to move it ahead and, and develop things. But I feel like if I'm not in the field, not actually doing the work, then I don't have the creative juices to continue to bring forth things that move the industry ahead. No, I understand that from from all your time in the industry. I'll just I'll I'll give you a couple quick fire questions. I'm gonna let you get out of here. But in in that part of it, seeing you come from the original side of it, the the residential typical thing, and the, and the gymnasium side of it, are there people that you know of, heard of in the industry that you would like to meet or work with? People that I, I was well, I guess this isn't the question. I give a shout out to my mentor, Mr. Randy Nash of R&R Hardwoods out of Boise, Idaho. Randy said something to me early on in my career that rings in my head to this day. He said, you always want to do things right the first time, but you won't, <laughs> especially not if you hire employees. Yeah, but if you have the integrity to go back make it right with that customer you'll actually build more rapport with that customer going back and taking care of their concern than you would have if you'd have just done it right the first time even though that was ultimately your goal is to do it right the first time yeah there's a there's a lot that annoys us in the residential side of things when you're doing a gym floor is there is there any particular pet peeves or things that just drive you nuts well you know there's all kinds of let me preface this by saying problems are always opportunities. Look, at, if it drives me nuts, it's driving other contractors nuts, and it means that it's driven our customers nuts because they're the ones that are calling us wanting it fixed. Sure, there's all kinds of things. I could go on and on and on. Uh, you know, kids walking through the finish in the gym before it's dry, right? Right. And that's not my fault, but the customer looks at it as it's a problem because the floor doesn't look right and somebody's got to come back and fix it but they don't really want to pay for it you know i i could go on and on and on and on but we try to do the best that we possibly can to solve our customers issues is there always somebody on the customers. other side of those fire doors just waiting to bust in on you <laughs> i mean they're, they're out there bouncing the basketball exactly <laughs> I, I just thought about that. We used to be like, why are the doors locked? Well, that's why people won't stay out of our work. And they're, and you can't stop them. They're, they're 75, 150 feet away from you. And they're already in. One last question. At, at, at your home or your office, 
out in your driveway? You got lines? You got three-point lines? You got hoops? Or, or is this, <laughs> do you have a do you have a basketball court in a shed in your backyard? Or is this, are you just leaving it uh, on the job when you come home at night? Awesome. Awesome question, Steve. Awesome question. I just, this past year, I, I purchased a new place about two years ago. And it had 1990s hideous shag carpet in it. And I did a video last year, 2021, and I said, uh, it was a video on contractor sales. And one of the things that I said was, to the extent you can, you've got to buy your own product. That's a, that's a critical component of sales. And then I watched that video at some point and I thought, oh, Paul, what a hypocrite you are. You don't have any hardwood floor in your house. And so as soon as things settled down a little bit last year in October, I tore all the carpet out of my house moved all my furniture i was sleeping in the basement it was just it took me four months because you know guys had to run out and do jobs for customers that were actually paying the freight and, and my own personal job was sort of secondary but i now have hardwood floor throughout the entire main level of my house and i put in two and a quarter and one and a half inch gym floor maple exactly what i'm selling my customers is what i live on day in and day out and no no three no painted lines no three pointers nothing in the no, driveway no 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 i did not paint in, in my personal residence but i do have gymnasium maple floors throughout the main level of my personal residence paul nelson western sports floors and wyoming wood floors i really really appreciate your time i told you if we talked two minutes that we'd go on forever it's worked out perfectly fine i enjoyed visiting with you steve let's do it again soon take care buddy we'll talk soon you bet bye-bye Thanks for listening to this episode of All Things Wood Floor. If you'd like to see Paul Nelson's article on transitioning from residential to sports flooring, check out the June-July 2022 issue of Wood Floor Business. If you don't get your own copy, you can sign up for a free subscription at woodfloorbusiness.com. And you can find the digital version of each issue on our website, too. Please make sure you rate and review our podcast and follow All Things Wood Floor so you don't miss a single episode.